and the sheep have changed their tune. Welcome to the podcast. We are the Lambert, the Lanky guy, the Lanky, the Lambert. Just, we're the Lanky guys. I was trying to make a thing there, and it didn't work. And you're listening to the Word on the Hill. Yeah, and I'm Scott Powell, and I'm Father Peter Musset, and it is really nice to be back with you guys. I was uh, in the forest. <laughs> <laughs> is that true? Yeah, I was. I mean, I was in a house in the forest, but I mean, technically it was in the forest. That's fair. And um, I did not spend my time listening to this Cure song, The Forest, over and over and over and over again. I did not do did that. Did you spend your time listening to reruns of The Lanky Guys? Um, I didn't. I actually, it was really funny. I, I tuned into The Lanky Guys um, on my way home from the retreat. And did you really? I did. I did. Because uh, I was like, I got to prepare a homily because this is how I prepare oh, for my homily. Perfect. And, um, and so I was really impressed. Father Brady is totally awesome. I uh, think that he is a worthy replacement for me. He's a good. He's just a good guy. It was lots of fun. Yeah, dude. And his Halloween, man. Like, dude, he was riffing on Halloween. I was, was pretty he? impressed. Yeah. It was good. About yeah, was about fun. that whole thing about mournfulness and they asked from sweets to sweets to sweets it up. He was super nervous. Can you all tell your friends and put us on Facebook and tweet about us so we can get our listeners up? We've been trying to fine-tune the podcast the last couple of weeks and make this the best podcast, podcast on possible. The, on the iTunes. <laughs> on the tunes. So hey. yeah, if, and, and this is the thing, is that if, if you go and you're like, man, I'd really love to recommend this to people, but... But they're too dumb sounding. They're too, these two guys are too dumb. I really want you to um, uh, send us a, a private message on Facebook and tell us what you would think about um, about uh, improving this so that you'd feel better to recommend it to people because yeah. uh, we're really trying to reach people so that they are prepared for these Sunday Masses and being able to like open their hearts uh, to this profound grace of Christ that's poured out every week. and um, But to do it in a way that's really human and really down to earth in a way that you can feel like you're just hanging out with your friends and you're talking about profound things. Totally. Um, because, you know what, we're kind of... We're kind of alien sometimes. Mm, uh, yeah, mm, you know. Mm, that's... Mm. Speaking of aliens. Yo. <laughs> I have no segue there. But we do have a couple of shout outs. Oh, okay. That we want to give. Sweet. Uh, first of all, I want to give a shout out to um, a relatively new listener that we have whose name is Sally McEwen, who's out in uh, Detroit. Um, so she's a friend of Stephanie Saffold Woodridge, who doesn't like our singing. But she points that out to us regularly. <laughs> That's okay. Yeah, she said she said she'll she'll love the podcast as long as we don't sing. As long as we don't I, sing. I think that was what her message. Said. She also uh, said she was humming Lambert the Sheepish Lion, so we use that as our intro today. <laughs> I, we didn't even really comment on that. That was Lambert the Sheepish Lion, which yeah. I'd never heard before. Apparently, it's something from Father Peter's youth. <laughs> Dude, come on, man! Lambert the Sheepish Lion is the only way to roll, man. It is the only way to roll. On a on a more somber note. Yes, sir. Um, Many people have referred to <laughs> my wife, and probably other people too, have referred to us as the the Catholic car guys. Uh, what, car, car talk, talk. Uh, and you guys have probably heard that one of the two brothers that does the Car Talk show has died. Oh God, a couple days ago. Soul. So Ray, I love Car Talk. I feel like Father Peter just talks about liking it, but has never actually listened to it. But <laughs> oh, yeah. which is totally cool. Which is mostly true. I well, mean, that's fair. I anyway, mean, I may have heard an episode, okay? But to someone, so we both kind of bring our inspirations into the podcast, and one <laughs> of those for me is the Car Talk guys. So, um, we offer even even a prayer um, for fa- for uh, <laughs> for Father, but for Tom, one of the Car Talk brothers. So, anyway, moment of uh, 
remembrance for him. Where, I think he's a cool guy. I do, I do too. And I, I, I am personally trying to be the um, Roman Mars of the uh, Catholic podcast world. Yes, and I'm... You're the... listening to 99% Invisible, and I'm Roman Mars. Actually, you're listening to the Lanky Guys, and I'm Father Peter. I was trying to think of how I could do an Ira Glass impression, but I can't. Dude, Ira Glass has this like nasally thing going on, and it, like I, I was talking to somebody, and they were like, "Oh, you know what? This American Life would be great, except for that Ira Glass guy sounds horrible." Seriously? Yeah, and I was like, "That's I, a I, tough break." I, yeah, I just didn't even I just didn't even know how to respond to that. Lanky Guys would be awesome if it weren't for those ridiculous Father Peter and Scott. I mean, absolutely, 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 absolutely. Well, um, speaking of Lutlands, it is time to jump into the podcast for this week, which is, um, it is the Feast of the Dedication of the Lateran Basilica in Rome, Dude, which is a Which, which is, is the Mother Church. Day. Yeah, which is the Mother Church. So maybe you can tell us about that in a second, because I can, t- I can talk to the scriptures. I can't really speak to the importance of the Lateran Basilica as well as I think you can. So this week, though, all of our readings have something to do with the temple, which is really kind of cool. And, so, and we're not talking about that space in between your eye and your ear. That is where the temple is. Yeah, I yeah. never thought about describing it geographically, <laughs> but fair enough. It's that space. That space. So our first reading is coming from the book of Ezekiel, chapter 47, verses 1 through 2, 8 through 9, and then 12. Followed by the responsorial psalm, which is 46, 2 to 3, 5 to 6, 8 to 9, and the verse is from five it is indeed uh, our second reading is from first corinthians chapter three verse nine c through 11 and then jumping all the way to verse 16 through 17 and then we arrive at the gospel mm. yes we do it would be john mm. chapter two mm-hmm. verses 13 to 22 which Very is good. i just think it's really funny that um that uh we're right, like at the end of where all of the other gospels are, but like in John two, John is just man. John's got a whole narrative thing happening, man. He's got some stuff, man. I'm excited to talk about whoop, whoop. John and his stuff. So the um, Saint John Lateran. Yeah. Uh, so talk the, to us. Uh, it's uh, one of the. Uh, it's purportedly really the a- most ancient church in the church. Okay. So uh, somewhere around 400, they've had to rebuild it a couple times. It caught fire. It's kind of it's kind of like, like St. Thomas Aquinas. Yeah, absolutely. Just same slight, same deal. Same deal. Just a little bit older and without carpet. So <laughs> so um, so oh. at, at the at the heart of uh, of the the relic that's at the heart of St. John Lateran is a table, a wooden table that they said St. Peter said mass on really yeah and so um it is it is the mother church of the church it's where the pope's um seat is so it's considered an arch basilica okay so is this saint peter's is not the mother church no saint lateran is so what is saint peter's St. Peter's is totally awesome and big, <laughs> and and it's like the Vatican City State. I mean, it's like it's it's kind of like. Um, do you remember Millie Vanilli? Do I remember Millie Vanilli? Yeah, like Millie Vanilli had the two guys singing in the background, but they had to kind of put the really nice guy forward. You know, like that's kind of that's kind of what St. Peter's <laughs> is. It's kind of the Millie Vanilli of the church world. I I guarantee that has never been explained that way. <laughs> In the, in the two thousand year history of our church, yeah. so well done, Father Peter, hey, breaking new ground, breaking new ground theologically. Well, but so Saint John Lateran um, is uh, it was for the the Lateran family. It was donated um, to them. So it's them. the Pope's cathedral. It's where the Pope's chair is. So the yes. Pope, of course, is the Bishop of Rome. Yes, 
um, and the Bishop of Rome is the one who is the head over all the bishops. So First among the, equals, yep. Yeah, so as every archbishop or bishop has a seat in a cathedral somewhere. Yeah, I, I guess I didn't fully understand that. So bishop, Pope Francis' seat is not in... Um, St. Peter's. St. Peter's, it's no. in the Lateran. Yes. Cool. So that and, and that gives you a little bit of a sense. So what we're celebrating is we're celebrating um, uh, on this Sunday the glory of... Uh, the mother church the yeah. fact that we have uh, that, that the temple has been uh, reestablished and the fact that we have a home like i yes. remember when i went to st peter's when i went to vatican Ooh, for the point. first time yeah and feeling like wow this is my parish like i've got my parish back in boulder but this is also this is sort of my my home parish it's every catholic in the world they have a home church and it's in rome and that's just kind of cool it is cool because we like a sense of place. Human beings need place. Right? Absolutely. And, and the fact that the architectural style is Baroque just rocks my socks because I really love the Baroque. You got to go for Baroque. Yeah, 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 yeah. Come on. Yeah, that's that's necessary. Trying to think of something better. That's but. filled with necessity. So <laughs> what you're going to be hearing today is um, the the uh, a meditation really on the temple and what what is the temple and mm -hmm. how do we get to it and, um, and, and what does it mean to have home? And how I mean, many cubits is it? Dude, yeah, no kidding. Well, that that's a great segue Thank into you. Ezekiel 47. Ezekiel 47. The angel brought me back to the entrance of the temple, and I saw water flowing out from beneath the threshold of the temple toward the east, for the facade of the temple was toward the east, and the water flowed down the southern side of the temple from the altar. Um, this is a really interesting. So we've talked about Ezekiel. I think was last week Ezekiel as well? We had Ezekiel really recently, and I can't remember exactly when. But the uh, the schema, no, last week was wisdom. I think it was the one before that. But Ezekiel, the schema, the schema of Ezekiel, which we talked about a while ago, is one of creation to decreation to recreation. Creation to decreation to recreation. Make sense? Yeah. So it begins by talking about the people of Israel and who they are and who they're supposed to be. Ezekiel is the one who witnesses the fall of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple. Remember, Ezekiel was the one who had that weird vision. So he was in Jerusalem when the when the Babylon came in, began to take down the city, and he was taken in one of the first rounds of exiles because he was skilled and he was talented. He was a priest. He was of the aristocracy. So they took him off to exile, and then he had a vision where he saw Jerusalem destroyed, but he saw it from Babylon. And one of the things that he sees, it's in chapters 10 and 11, is the... So So here's what's going on in, in Jerusalem in the time the Babylon is attacking. Nobody seemed to think that this was that big of a problem. Remember, the prophets had been warning them, Jeremiah, Isaiah, everybody had been saying, look, you have to change your act. You have to turn around because there is punishment coming unless you repent. And the response of everyone was, well, yeah, but I bet this Babylon thing is all going to blow over pretty soon. It's really not that big of a deal. There Eesh. were actually false prophets that Jeremiah tells us about that were going around saying, no, don't listen to these guys. They're wrong. This isn't a big deal. You have God on your side. He's always going to protect you. We have the temple for Pete's sake. And in the temple dwells the very presence of God. So if God's presence is in the temple, how on earth could a foreign nation come and destroy it? There's no way because they'd have to rip God's presence out of it. And they could never do that. So basically everyone decided, look, we're fine. Everything's okay. Ezekiel and Jeremiah and all these guys, they're kind of wacko and they're over, they're overreacting. Does that make sense? Yes, of course. So, of course, Ezekiel sees this vision of God's presence, which they thought was their reason for being protected. He sees God's presence, get up, leave, and go out of the east gate of the temple and go dwell on the Mount of Olives. And everyone's like, uh-oh, 
that stinks. There goes God's presence. Rep, bro. And after that happens, then you get the destruction, the decreation. Even the language of the of the battles and the language of the destruction of Jerusalem is a reversal of the creation story. Everything is being undone. But after that, when Ezekiel writes chapter 47, when the people are dealing well, yeah, with the fact— Well, yeah, we start. I mean, he has a vision actually starting in chapter 40. Exactly. 40 yeah. through 48. It's eight chapters. Yeah. And, and so, I mean, we've had seven chapters of description leading up to this leading 47. To this. Yeah. Where, where, which is, it's, it's all, it's again, set in a vision, and it's all these descriptors of yeah. the temple and liturgy. I mean, it's actually funny because it's like really detailed. Really detailed, which is why many, many people— Many of our Christian friends um, believe that before Jesus comes to comes again, there will be another temple that's rebuilt in Jerusalem. Um, is it, that's from this Ezekiel? No, I didn't realize no, that because I this mean, is it. The, yeah, because I, I mean, you're reading it and you're like, okay, I, I was trying to understand like what 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 is this prophecy? Because this is where this is where there's a great deal of confusion, and there's three different possibilities. I think so. Oh, there are there are some. I like it when there's possibilities. Yeah, some of our more like fundamentalist um, friends and and those who uh, Christian Zionists, for example, have they have they taken the fun out of fundamentalists? Ah, ah. you know the joke. Scott Hahn told me the joke. Fundamentalist is all fun, no fun, and no mental. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. <laughs> um, that's really good. I lost my chance. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So the Zionists, the fundamentalists. Yeah, the idea that, look, the Ezekiel is clear, and it's so detailed, it can't be symbolic for something else. Well, here's it's, the question. It, like, yeah, I mean, the description, are, are they accurate to the first temple, or is this so a new, this is an advancement of what the temple layout would be? This temple, if it were to be built in the size that is described in these eight chapters, would be bigger than the entire city of London. Whoa! It would not actually fit in Jerusalem. It would it would by it would far exceed any boundaries of Jerusalem, and it really wouldn't fit in the Holy Land. So you have to read this at one. Point. Like, well, you have to be. I mean, you have to be like, well, wait a second. These are these are absurd dimensions, which tells me that it's speaking to something else. It's actually speaking to something far greater than just some brick and mortar building that we ought to build. In a, well, well, I mean, when we look at numbers in the Old Testament, it's not necessarily right. They're, they're quantitative, but they're qualitative. They're more qualitative. Yeah. Now, that's not to diminish um see this is tricky because because it's symbolic we, and it's so so there's a reality definitely to the, the numbers. Right. Right. It, it's you can't just dismiss the size of things. You actually are meant right. to engage it. It's not like we can just kind of um mentally create it. We actually have to say no, there there's something to that. I mean, yeah. imagining something that big. Sorry, I just totally cut you off. No, but. no, no, not at all. Um there's see this is I've this is sort of why I've been struggling 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 all morning is to try to find how to what do you do with this? Because it's not it's not easily just being like, okay, well, good. There's this description. It's it's just symbolic, so we don't have to think about it anymore and just fantasy move on. Land. Yeah. It's not fantasy land. And again, the fact that there are so many details tells you there's something of import here. Part of what it's saying, part of the reason that there's so many details for eight chapters drawn out with every single bit, I think is is an effort to try to show, like, look at how utterly important the liturgical life of Israel is. Now, this isn't just a side note. It's not just, oh, and then there'll be another temple someday, and it'll be glorious, the end. It's so detailed to show the great importance of this gathering place and this assembly and the liturgical life that it represents and everything else that that the faith encompasses. It's not a side note. It's not um, this incidental. Does that make sense? Totally. So the does. details matter, not necessarily that there will be 
you know, literally a brick wall that's 40 miles long. I don't think that's necessarily what it's getting at. But these numbers represent something. Again, we don't we don't want to get into the trap of saying, well, okay, because they're symbolic and they're sort of figurative, it means it's like fairy tale language. No, it's not fairy tale language. It's figurative language, which um, it means it represents something true and that profound. Figures. This is, <laughs> but Catholics do believe in a literal reading of the Bible. We just don't li- believe in a literalistic reading of the Bible. Yeah, right? you have to read it as some. It is it is a real referent. But it's not necessarily existent and literalistic. I yeah, it's, that's a hard distinction. It to is make a hard distinction that we should go through at some point. But yeah, yeah I mean, and uh, the liturgy with the prince. So we're we're in the middle of this with Ezekiel, and yeah. and so w- which is at this certain point where um, everything we're describing the interior reality of the temple until finally we get to chapter forty-seven, and all of a sudden something else happens. Yes, which is this tremendous flow of water. Right from where. What I'm seeing is it's flowing out of the heart of the temple, the threshold, the foundations, like you said, right? The foundation of it um, is what's going on here. It's flowing out of the heart of the temple. And of course, what is this a reference to? The heart of Christ. Right. When, when do we see water flowing out of the heart of another temple in the New Testament? Whoa. Yeah, see, so this is pointing ahead, and it's actually... Uh, I yeah. mean, crucifixion, for those of you who are not... Right, right, sorry. Need, ...needed to spell out. I was just kind and of marveling And that's in John, it. ironically, which is where our gospel comes from. But it's yeah. only John who points out that this water flowed out of the side, coming from the heart of Jesus, who declared himself a new temple. And we'll get to more temple references to Jesus in, in the gospel, but, but, I mean, here's the bottom line. There's two things I want to say. Number one, just to spell it out, what the Catholic... The traditional Catholic understanding of this is that Yes, there is going to be. So again, Ezekiel's writing in a time when they've just watched their temple be destroyed. They're looking forward to a time when God is going to restore their fortunes, when he's going to... Remember, this actually comes just after Ezekiel's vision of the dry, the valley of the dry bones. Remember yeah. that whole thing? Where he sees literally bones and bodies coming back to life. So it's saying that, look, when God restores everything, you're going to know what that, you're going to know what to look for because you're going to see bodies coming back from the dead. Israel will be restored and it will be like a person coming back to life. And on top of that, there's going to be this glorious new temple. So where do we see people coming back to life and a glorious temple with water flowing out of its heart? I mean, all of this is pointing to Jesus, right? So is there a literal temple that's going to show up when God chooses to reconcile all things back to himself? Yes, absolutely. But the temple is the temple of Jesus' own body, which and I've seen. I tried to dig it up today, and I couldn't find it. I once, a long time ago, saw an article that was making an attempt, and I don't remember if it was good or not, but it was making an attempt to um, try to find symbolic uh, connections between each of these parts of the temple in Ezekiel and parts of the human body. Oh. And that you can actually translate these measurements into different things in the body and all sorts of stuff. And it was, I remember reading it years ago and being really fascinated by it. Gosh, it makes me think that uh, all of a sudden I'm conceiving of Jesus' body as the TARDIS from Doctor Who. <laughs> Is that the phone booth? Yeah, that's the phone booth that you walk in. That's the spaceship that's like bigger on the inside. That like, if you were to actually like see into Christ, then you would actually see bigger than the the you would actually see had the heavenly Jerusalem. Last year, I was in the BBC studios in England, and I sat in the TARDIS in their lobby, and I took a picture of myself, and I sent it to you, but it never went through. Oh, you have to send it to me again. I have to send it to you again. I need Scott in the TARDIS because <laughs> <laughs> could the TARDIS be the temple? Oh my gosh! It's actually an image Don't for head Christ. Down this, this, road. Is, this is bad. Okay, <laughs> this is a bad road. Yeah. Do you know what else um, is being 
what else? Okay, so I see two major passages from Scripture being foreshadowed in this Ezekiel passage. Number one is all the references to Christ, and especially the water coming out of the heart of Christ, who is the new temple. But there's also a reference to something else in the Bible that's going to come in the New Testament. Do you know what it is? Uh, I mean, is it, is it in relationship to our psalm? Oh. No, I think the psalm's a... a because the psalm is a part of it. Something in the New Testament, though. No, I... When else do we hear about an eschatological temple in the New Testament? I mean, uh, Revelation 11. Revelation? Yeah, something like that. 21, 22. 21, 22. Be cool. Yeah, yeah. Now, here's what I want to point out about that. Now, and again, I, this connection... I mean, this is the thing is that the person who's giving the image is actually the same in, in both Revelation and this. And John. In, Wait. In what? In Revelation and then chapter 40 here. I mean, Oh, the it's des- an angel. Yeah, the description the description is actually really intense. Yes, yeah, sorry, I understand. Yes, totally. Yeah, like how, totally, totally, how does totally. it go? Let me get back there for a second. Just uh, as, as, we're, as we're dealing with... Revelation you know, 21? Yeah, Revelation 21 in relationship to this. In relationship to this. So, so there's one big difference in Revelation 21 and this. Do you know what the major difference between the scene here in Ezekiel and the scene in Revelation is? <laughs> it's kind well, of a trick question. Well, hold on. He says, he brought me there a, a man whose appearance was like bronze yeah. and with a linen cord. Had a um, nice tan. He was bronzed. You are absurd, dude. Hey. And a measuring reed in his hand, it. and he was standing in the gateway. And uh, so, okay, never mind. But yeah, no, no, I, no, you're I, right. I actually, yeah, and, yeah, I mean, he the, goes the, on to measure, and there's measurements. It's all, it's, it's all totally um, parallel. Parallel. What's going on but here? You're I, absolutely right. I do not know the answer to your question. There's one thing that Ezekiel has that Revelation doesn't. Ah, which sounds like a trick. Well, it's gonna, it's gonna come off like a trick question. I don't know. What's the most important thing that's mentioned in Ezekiel? Um, the altar. No. What's the, the altar inside of? Temple. Guess what's not in Revelation? The temple? There's no temple in Revelation. So you get the same image. You get the same scene. You get the same parallels. And we're told that there is this city, the heavenly Jerusalem, that descends down to earth. And it talks about a river that flows through the center of it. And remember, the river is giving life, and it gets deeper, and it, there's trees blooming on each side of it. And it actually says, this is in chapter 21... Uh, verse 22, it says, this is John, and I saw no temple in the city for its temple is the Lord God, the almighty and the lamb. And the city had no need for the sun or the moon to shine upon it for the glory of God was its light and its lamp is the lamb by its light. All the nations shall walk and it goes on, et cetera, et cetera. Now here's the thing about the city. So Ezekiel sees a vision of a temple that is of absurd proportions. Um, John in Revelation sees a vision of a city, which also has sort of absurd proportions. And a couple chapters before, uh, John was told to measure out the city for judgment. And he goes and he measures the city. And I made a note of this. And I'm even a little bit confused by it. Yeah, he makes, this was back um, in, it's in verse 15, actually. So it's it's a couple of verses before. But if you read it carefully, the city is four square. So it's a giant cube. Which matches the altar. It's actually a reference to 1 Kings chapter 6. The city has the exact same dimensions. The city in Revelation has the exact same dimensions as 1 Kings describes the Holy of Holies. Oh. What is the Holy of Holies? The place of God's dwelling. The place of God's dwelling. So why do you think the eschatological city of Jerusalem has no need for a temple? Because it is the place of God's dwelling already. The whole city is the Holy of Holies. 
It is God's presence. There's no need for a temple because there's no need for walls to close God's presence in. The entirety of the eschatological city of the new heavens and the earth that we'll all be a part of is the Holy of Holies. It is God's dwelling place. Yes. And there's a river that flows out of the heart of it. We get an image into that. We get a glimpse when we see Jesus on the cross, who is the Holy of Holies. He is the presence of God incarnate, out of whom there's rivers of living water flowing out of his heart, the temple of his of his body. Wow. Or the altar of his body, of his heart. Yeah. Does that make sense? This it's all a little bit esoteric, I suppose, but it is. Well, I mean, I, I go back to I go back in Ezekiel and actually the the it's the the altar is described as a cube. So, the, so, so we actually have. Is this. it? And I, maybe I just missed that, but that's perfect. If that's true, yeah. So what happens? That's is, awesome. Is the is the the, the all and, and that's actually that's where in in the contemporary church we actually reverence the altar as we would reverence Christ. That's why the priest, when right. he goes, he kisses the to, altar, kisses yeah. the altar because he's kissing Christ when he comes in and when he leaves. It's a it's a it's that profound gesture, wow. but it's it's God's dwelling because yeah. what is what is Christ's body but the altar. To where he offers, oh, his body is the temple, is the place of presence, is, is the, the offering, altar, is, is the, the altar. Offering. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Yeah, it's so wow, that's cool, and and the place of dwelling, which is like there's a lot of mystical stuff happening. There's in, a lot of mystical stuff happening here. Um, that's that's really very beautiful. Yeah. Which I feel like for some reason we need to get to the psalm then. Okay, let's get to the psalm. So Psalm forty six. We, I mean, at face value, it makes sense why we would have this. The waters of the river gladden the city of God, the holy dwelling of the Most High. The waters of the river gladden the city of God. I mean, you can even see the foreshadowings, the echoes of revelation in here. Yeah. God is our refuge and our strength and ever-present help in distress. Therefore, we fear not, though the earth may be shaken, the mountains plunge into the depths of the sea. It's ironic because this psalm is speaking back into the history that Ezekiel is writing, where... Their temple was torn down and shaken. Um, and it's ironic that the psalm says, Therefore we fear not, though the earth be shaken and the mountains plunged in the depths of the sea. For them, the temple being destroyed was like their world crumbling and being thrown into the sea. And the psalm is saying, Even if that should happen, do not be afraid. Oh. Why? Because... In my opinion, this song, this uh, the passage from Ezekiel is not pointing to some other building that can be shaken down and destroyed and thrown into a sea. It's being it's pointing to a temple that's not made with human hands, that no human hand can actually destroy. Even if they do destroy it, it pops back from the dead. And rivers back. and rivers and flow. rivers flow out of it. Therefore, our hearts should not be shaken, which is exactly what the psalm is saying. If the new temple is Jesus's body. Well, what is the church? What are we? Well, we are Jesus's body. The church is his body. And so what is the new temple? Well, in a very real way, it actually is us. We are the temple because we actually stand in that place. We stand with Christ. And just as he is the temple, so we are the temple as well. And just as he, his, the temple of his body was destroyed and then rose again in hope and in and in fulfillment of the Father's plan, so too when we get beat up and destroyed, we have hope of our own resurrection as well. So this isn't some—the reason I point that out is that I think it's easy to read through these readings and think about the temple and the, the Lateran Basilica and all this stuff and think in terms of very distant, kind of far-off um, things that are out there outside of myself. There's a beautiful building over here. There was this great building that existed thousands of years ago that I never saw. There's all this stuff, but no, actually, I am a part of this narrative. 
my very body is attached to the reality of the temple because I actually am a temple as long as I'm united with Christ, who is the temple. So the us's and the we's and the ours actually matter in the psalm. Even before there is Jesus incarnate, the psalm is already pointing to this corporate reality, which um, you look like you have something to say, but is a segue into the First Corinthians reading, because that's what First Corinthians is going to get at. Yeah, I mean, you. It, all of this makes me think of Voltron. <laughs> of course it does. <laughs> well, I mean, as, as, as you're, because t- like Voltron, man, they all assemble like they're like divergent robots, and then they like get put together, and they're they're like one. There's no way I could ever be able to predict the things that are going to come out of your mouth <laughs> at any given time. Um, well, I just am such a child of pop culture. So, um, well, what, what's cool is that as you're uh, as you're talking, like. You say, oh, we, we have hope that we will rise, rise with him. Brother, we have been baptized. We have already ro- rose and risen right. with him. Right. And that we Rosen. are already Rosen, Rosen, <laughs> Rosencrantz. Rosen. <laughs> that, yes. Um, that we've already, we've already risen with him. Yeah. And, um, and, th- and, and then all of a sudden I had this image of, of like, well, then how do you make sense of us getting beat up? How do you make yeah. sense of, of, of all of these things? And then... I think about what if we really were like a part of his body, the singular blows of the of the passion wow. that in some ways they inflict us because we are in and we are uh, that in some ways Jesus is mit, mm. his in his body. It's a metimony. Um, a metimony is a, a grammatical structure that um, or a synecdoche is a more specific subset of metimony. Yes. Schenectady. Schenectady. Oh yeah, but uh, a synecdoche, which is uh, the part describes the whole. Okay. So, okay. S- okay. Okay. Yeah. 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 So, so what happens is that we being brought into the temple, being actually incorporated into the temple. I mean, that's like mm. the visions of the temple coming mm. down. It talks about all of the foundation stones and how we're a temple built of living stones, and that there's a lot of description about what the f- floor is. It's this like trampa- transparent gold, wow, and these carnelians and and all of these twelve foundation stones that build it up. But wow. then in the midst of it, it's like the sufferings are coming because we are united to Christ. Mm. That that we have died and we've been raised with Him, but that we are are participants in His very life. That we are actually. I am the way, the truth, and the life. So if we're bound to him, then we experience the same things that as the temple went through total profound destruction, like Ezekiel, like the the, uh, creation, destruction, recreation. Yeah. That, that that's this actually pattern that we're going through. Um, that's why, like, as as we're dealing with with um, the Saint John Lateran, it's like there's a, a certain sense of a home church, but the home church, I mean, is is Christ. It is Christ. Yeah, right. But that um, all of these attempts and these works of of beautiful architecture are these imitations and expressions of this of this being uh, totally bound up in Christ and imitating the vision of this heavenly Jerusalem because we need that vision. Mm-hmm. Which brings us to 1 Corinthians. Wow, yeah, I know. Sorry about my diatribe there, man, but I'm, no, all, it was, I'm all motivated. It was great. And then, this, bring, which brings us to this. It's perfect. Um, so, 1 I, Corinthians 3. I always, I always knew I was perfect. So no, it's perfect. Oh, shoot. <laughs> <laughs> Brothers and sisters, you are God's building. Isn't that great? You are literally God's temple. You are God's building. According to the grace of God given to me, 
Like a, ma like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation and another one is building upon it. Each one must be careful how he builds upon it for what, no one can lay a foundation other than the one that is there, namely Jesus Christ. This, um, this is one of those weird readings that we get that jumps and skips a whole big chunk. Do you know what this passage skips? Skip to Lou, my darling. Skip to Lou. I do not know. And it's okay. I, I don't. I don't fault the church because it's it's a big theological concept that it just jumps right over, which we don't have time liturgically to get into. But it jumps over the concept of purgatory. This is actually one of the most. Well, this is the clearest scriptural reference for the notion of purgatory. Whoa! Showing up in chapter three. So here's what's going on. Paul is dealing with this church in Corinth who are struggling with a whole lot of things. They're, they're basically, the, Corinth's main struggle is that they've become a personality cult, right? So there's Christians that are saying, well, I'm a better Christian because I follow Peter, or I'm better because I follow Paul, or I'm better because I follow Apollos, or I'm better because I follow Christ. And Paul says, you're even putting Christ into the same category as us. No, it's not about personalities. You're not a better Christian because Archbishop Chaput baptized your kids than if Father Peter did. You know, I mean, that, that doesn't, that's not how it works. We're not no. a, well, Christianity is a personality cult, but it's only one personality that we're supposed to be rallied around. And so what Paul is saying here is, a, is that, okay, so here's, here's the deal. God is building a church among you in Corinth. He says, you are the church. You are God's building according to the grace. Like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation. Now, who's a skilled master builder? I mean, Joseph of Nazareth. Who? Um, <laughs> Just messing with you, dog. Oh. Jesus is a master builder. No, Jesus is. Oh, I missed a piece. So one of the main things that Paul will talk about in the letter to the Corinthians is the idea of wisdom and how their wisdom, or at least their perceived wisdom, because remember, they're the next door neighbors to Athens, where they have people like Plato and Socrates and Aristotle. They love abstractions versus symbolic stuff. They do, but Cor the Corinth are, are, they're all not as good at it as everybody else. So they want to be the big, important, wise philosophers. Like Athens. Like Athens, but they're not. And so they're big on their wisdom, but their wisdom isn't getting them anywhere. So Paul's going to constantly mock them for that. So if you're already thinking about wisdom, and then you hear about a skilled master builder who laid a foundation, yeah. what Old Testament figure is going to jump to your head? Who's somebody wise Solomon? who built something? Yeah, Solomon. Wise Solomon who built the temple. So he's got their minds going this direction about wisdom and Solomon and, and a temple. He's like, I was like that. I laid a foundation and another's building upon it. In other words, Paul says, I founded the church in Corinth, and that was great. But then I left, and it wasn't about me because somebody else took my place. And then another pastor came in, and he's building upon the foundation that I laid. And then another one's going to build upon it, and that's fine because it's not about me. It's not about our building. It's not about ourselves. Somebody else is building upon it, but each one must be careful how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than the one that's already there, Jesus Christ. I laid the foundation. You guys are blowing it. And there's a lot of teachers that are coming. They're trying to pile a bunch of snot on top of the foundation that I laid. The foundation's secure. The foundation is Jesus. But you got to be really careful how you build upon that foundation. Um, what he does in the intervening verses is basically say, he gives an argument for purgatory. Basically, he says there's going to come a day when God comes to judge all of you and he's going to judge the things that you've built upon that foundation. If the foundation is secure and you've built upon it with wood and hay and stubble, then all the stuff that's not supposed to be there will be burned away. It will be purged with fire, even though you will be saved if your foundation is secure. If the foundation's not there, 
it doesn't matter what you build upon it. But if you have the foundation of Jesus, if you have this foundation and you build crap on it, then that stuff needs to be burned away. And it will, although you will still be saved. And again, we, there, there's lots more we could say about this in terms of the idea of purgatory. That what is purgatory? It's simply a purgation that when we stand before God, we can't bring any of the imperfections that we had in this life. So God, in his great love and mercy, is going to burn all that stuff away so that we can be pure before him. So that's what Paul is basically describing here. But what he ends in saying, this, he ends this thought by saying, do you not know that you are the temple of God? It's not about the building. It's not about your pastor. It's not about all these people. It's you because Christ has actually done this. Because why? And the spirit of God dwells within you. So, and now I think he's aiming this at the teachers who are causing a lot of harm in Corinth. If anyone destroys God's temple, I will destroy that person for the temple of God Uh, which you are, is holy. So what is he saying? If you mislead people in the church, if you destroy the foundation, Mm. if you take people the wrong direction, that is God's temple. And you are basically like Babylon or Rome who destroyed the temple of God and made themselves the enemy of the people of God. Do you want to do that? No. Everyone's like, no, I don't want to do it. Don't want to do it. Not going to happen. But it's beautiful because it's saying... Again, going back to the Old Testament, it's not about this big, stone, beautiful building. It's about the people that God has actually put in front of you. They're more valuable than the biggest, most beautiful building in the Middle East that you could possibly build. It's not that. That's not the point. Because because it is Christ, I mean, it's also not the idea, that the kind of new agier idea that, well, we're all divine and we all have God and that's, that's why we're all... No, we are God's temple because we're united to Jesus who is the temple. And my being united to him and his spirit, spirit which lives in me is what allows me to be his temple. So then we have to be very careful with the temples that we interact with every day. And if you destroy one, then you're going to be in big trouble. Time's going to get real hard. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. So it fits. I think it fits nicely. <laughs> well done. So let's get into John. Let's do that. Uh, one de dos, trece a dos y dos. <laughs> Very good. You can tell my Spanish oh. teachers really loved me. No, dosi dos is twenty two. Dosi dos, you know that's how we go. Okay, this is weird. There's some weird stuff going on here. Cleanse. Here's the problem. In the Synoptic Gospels, so you know Matthew, how you Mark, cleanse. Luke, you know how you cleanse a temple. Oh my gosh, how this sounds like laffy taffy. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say lots of jalapenos, but that's just my. That was not okay, was it? <laughs> no, sorry. well anyway anyway um no there's a problem though in the synoptic gospel so in matthew mark and luke the cleansing of the temple what just say no i'm just looking at you i'm still smiling at my stupid joke in the synoptic gospels the cleansing of the temple happens at the end of the gospels i know what that's what i said at the beginning of this i was like dude we started at like versicle two Oh, is that what you were talking about? Yeah. Oh. You just were agreeing because you didn't understand? Because uh, I didn't totally understand. It's like, oh, I'm yeah. sure you know what you're talking yeah, about. Yeah, I, like, I was like, John chapter two, like, what the, oh. what? I mean, I was like, yeah, wow, this, you you, this is really pretty early for this moment. Well, that's true. So so in the synoptics, it happens right before his crucifixion. Yeah. In John, it happens at the very beginning of his ministry. So the question is, which one is it? Well, John is literary. I mean, like, so so uh, it's it's a both and. Well, there's two options, right? Either he did it John rearranged it. Well, either John rearranged it because he was trying to make a point or emphasize something. He, yeah. it, it wouldn't it wouldn't make John wrong or in error or anything. He doesn't say when it happened. He just simply 
tells this story States here. It. So that's a possibility. The other possibility is that Jesus actually does this twice. Which I think is the much more likely possibility because I think the scenes are slightly different. Here's why I think he does it twice. Can I can I make yeah, argument. Yeah, yeah. I mean, well, I, I, I'm thinking about the details where he had the apostles, um, like, uh, like cover the doors. The, the, the one time when he did it, and like he's he shuts down all commerce that's going through. Right. Whereas this time, it, it just sounds kind of more like they're not getting it. He's doing some stuff, and they're like, "Dude, okay, yeah, make the argument because this is a this is a revolutionary idea, kind of like your brain, dude." Oh, nice. So we just finished the marriage at Cana, right? The wedding at Cana. Okay, that just happened, and then we're told that it's the Passover time. So because it's Passover time, they go up to Jerusalem, and then um, he finds all this. Now it's in. Let's see. Is it actually in this one? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so so the Passover for the Jews was near, so Jesus went to Jerusalem. He found in the temple those who were sold oxen and sheep and doves, as well as the money changers. He made a whip out of cords. He drove them all out with his whip, which is rough. Dude, he was um, he was singing the Devo song. Yeah. Dun, 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 dun. Whip it good. <laughs> there it is. Um, and the sheep and oxen, they, he spilled the money changers. Um, and those who sold doves, he said, take these out of here. Stop making my father's house. A marketplace. His disciples recalled the words of scripture, zeal for your house will consume me. At this, the Jews answered and said to him, what sign can you show us for doing this? For, for the first thing I think is interesting is that in the synoptic gospels, when he does it at the time of his crucifixion, he does this and people are furious. And he actually winds up at the cross very, very shortly after. Yes. Here in John, he does this big profound act and everyone's like, okay, so what are you trying to say, right? They get that he's doing some sort of a symbolic action. And they're like, okay, so what sign are you going to show us for this? Like, okay, wh what are you getting at here? So you get the idea that they're expecting something. In the synoptics, they're kind of at their last straw. They're like, yeah, nope, this isn't going to happen. Yeah. So that's, that's something. But it says after this, the Jews answered, okay, what sign? Jesus said to them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And then the Jews said, this temple has been under construction for 46 years. Now, that's the moneymaker. That's where we learn everything we need to know. So 46 years. Um, Herod started the temple renovation. So we know, historically, Herod started renovating the temple in 19 BC. Right? So if Herod began his renovations on the temple in 19 BC, this would be 46 years after that. So can do, you do, do quick do, math? No, what, you what do the year math for me. It? So that would land you in the year 27 AD, oh. which is at the beginning or the end of Jesus' ministry? Beginning. Yeah, it's at the beginning. So it's not his crucifixion year, for sure. If it's been under construction for 46 years, if it started in the year 19 BC, if Jesus isn't going to be crucified for a couple more years, then it actually has to be at the beginning of his ministry. So either the synoptic writers rearranged it and put it in a different place, or he actually did do this twice which I think is very likely, which is also why, I mean, think about it, when John's gospel has Jesus showing up in Jerusalem a few times and doing pretty intense things every time, in the synoptics, when Jesus shows up in Jerusalem, he seems to be pretty well known there. People know who he is. They're freaked out by him. They're worried about him. They're watching him closely. He's not just another person claiming to be Messiah. Everybody's claiming to be Messiah. There's thousands yeah, there's of people tons, claiming to be Messiah. Tons. What sets Jesus apart? Well, it's the fact that this guy has been there before. He's cleansed the temple before. He's made these proclamations before. Now everybody's ready for it. And he goes to the cross in a couple days, in like two days after doing that, because he already did it 
a couple years prior. That's my theory. That's what I think is going on here. And also, the things that Jesus says are actually different. Yeah, that's that's totally wild, man. It doesn't necessarily blow my mind. Well, it doesn't change the story, really. I mean, it doesn't change any anything theologically, but it helps to make a little more sense of why Jesus is crucified, when and where and how he is. Well, no, because this has been building. It changes Christ's pedagogy, is what it it does. Totally does. Because at the beginning, you're you're saying. do we even know that he has followers in this moment? Well, we don't for sure. Well, the disciples were with him at Cana. We do know that. Oh, yeah. So the disciples were there. But but look at what he says. When, when he does this, their response is, what signs do you have? That suggests to me that he hasn't done any signs yet. Because they're asking for signs. Oh, so what signs oh, are you going to do? Yeah. So it suggests that maybe he hasn't done anything yet. And then he, he has the whole zeal, you know, the, the disciples. Oh, yeah, he does have disciples because, remember, the disciples yeah, then Philip, recalled the Nathaniel, words. yep. Zeal for your house will consume me. Um, the other thing that's different from the Synoptic Gospels is that uh, Jesus is specifically focusing on the marketplace ideal here. So, in this, and we've talked about this before, I think. I mean, there was, there was good reason for there to be money changers in the temple because you couldn't bring in coins that had uh, Caesar's face on them, because that would be a graven image. So you'd have to change out your coins. We talked about that a couple weeks ago, right? Absolutely, With the coin yeah. in the temple. So that's reasonable if there's money changers. It's reasonable if there's people who sold animals, because the Old Testament required that if you offered an animal in sacrifice, it had to be pure and free of blemish and totally clean. If you're traveling from somewhere else in the empire, somebody else, somewhere else in Palestine, you're on foot or you're on your donkey— your dove that was pristine and white when you started your five-day journey from Tyre or wherever it is is not going to be pristine by the time you get there five days later after being on dirty roads and, and camping on the side of the road and all this stuff, right? So the good sense in Jerusalem said, okay, well, we can have them buy them here. That's legitimate. Now, the problem was that they they uh, exploited the poor and that they charged incredible amounts for changing money and they charged interest. And then they, I was reading a, an article in an academic journal about dove inflation the other day, which dove inflation, dove inflation in the 21st century, the rabbis reported it. So that shows you what my life looks like. But anyway, but so we know that there's corruption going on here, but the bigger, the bigger problem here is that the old Testament was clear that the temple was meant to be, a house of prayer for all the nations. This is what Jesus says in Matthew. Scripture says, my father's house is supposed to be a house of prayer for all the nations, but you've made it into a den of robbers. And the reality was, yes, it was supposed to be. I mean, this this eschatal. So if there's somebody who's still thinking, I mean, do you remember when they came back? to? So Jerusalem was destroyed. Ezekiel talks about that. They go off into exile. They come back under the Persians. They rebuild the temple. And you remember the books of Ezra and Nehemiah say that when they rebuilt the temple, all the older people just wept at the top of their lungs. Because it was no good compared to what it was before. Well, I wonder. So it's no good compared to what it was before. Yeah, that's true. But could it be that people also knew the prophecy of Ezekiel? And they were thinking, well, wait, there's going to be another temple that's going to be magnificent and, you know, 50 times as big as the other one. Is this the eschatological temple that Ezekiel was talking about? This thing, this pathetic thing that's even smaller than the first one was? I wonder if people know the prophecies. They know this message that Ezekiel gave and they're seeing this temple and they're like, this is pathetic. So there's this whole hmm. this whole problem that's kind of going on here. This place that's supposed to be the house of prayer for all the nations, there was there were signs, Josephus writes about this, there were signs in between the temples from the outer courtyards to the inner ones that said, 
things like any Gentile who enters these gates, you alone are responsible for the certain death that will follow you. So, I mean, they've not made it into a, into a house of prayer for all the nations. You would literally be killed if you went into the wrong courtyard, right? Kill you. What? Kill you. <laughs> Kill you. So uh, Jesus, and then on top of that, there's consumerism. There's this, there's this um, exploitation of the poor with charging too much. And so Jesus is ticked off, and he does this. And what it does, just like the synoptics, if he drives out the money changers and he knocks over all the animals, then for a small period of time, on whatever day this is, there's no animals that are able to be sacrificed in the temple. All temple sacrifice ceases temporarily. Now, um, here's the other piece to this. In the Synoptic Gospels, when you read about Palm Sunday, when you read about the journey over the money changers tables and all this stuff, there's all these references in the Synoptics to the Feast of Tabernacles. Remember, Zechariah chapter 14 said, someday there's going to be this new temple, just like Ezekiel said, and someday all the nations will flock to this temple and they will all come to Zion and they will all be gathered together at this new temple and it's going to be really beautiful. And it says in Ezekiel, when they do, well, there's, they're going to celebrate this worldwide Feast of Booths or Feast of Tabernacles, which is the feast that our Jewish friends just celebrated a couple of weeks ago, which is this festival that some people literally will dwell in tents in their front yard or booths or these little huts. That's Rem- intense. Ah, very good. But they're remembering the time in the Exodus when God and Israel dwelt in tents in the wilderness. And they're recreating that. They're living that out. But for some reason, the, uh, the gospel writers say that when... What Zechariah says that in the end, when God reconciles all things, all peoples of the earth will have this big feast of tabernacles. Basically saying they're going to remember the time that they used to be in slavery and now they're free. They're going to celebrate that. And the last line of Ezekiel, when it says all nations will gather to this new temple, they'll celebrate the feast of tabernacles, remembering their, their slavery and celebrating their freedom. It, the last line of Zechariah says, and there will be no trade in the temple. Wow. Period. What does Jesus say? What does John say as Jesus cleanses this? He drives out the traitors. It's specifically, it's differently focused than the Synoptic Gospels, which is about the corruption, about keeping people out. This is about ending trade, pointing to this time of slavery that's actually going to come to the end when all nations will flock, not to the temple building in Jerusalem, but they'll flock to Jesus himself. And the first sign we see of that is this Roman centurion, who is a non-Jew, he's a Gentile, he's a pagan, who's the first person in the Gospels to proclaim as he sees Jesus on the cross that surely this was the Son of God. The Gentile nations are now flocking to the new temple. And as he's doing that, there's water flowing out of the heart of Jesus as this Gentile is flocking to the new temple. Does that make sense? Yeah. Which is really uh, is a really cool vision. Which is... Um, uh, I mean, that is Christ's whole project is to come and be the source of authentic worldwide blessing, a house of prayer for all people. Yeah. And uh, and uh, this has been a cool meditation on the temple. Indeed. I um, I mean, we don't really have to kind of come from some uh, linking point beyond what we've just given you. No. Um, it's it's already ex- explicit. So um, enjoy your church, and if it's not beautiful, demand that it become more beautiful. Ooh. Uh, and uh, politely, politely, and with all due reverence, <laughs> and, <laughs> yeah. and say, you know, may this help this to image the heavenly Jerusalem in a better way. Totally. Help this to image Christ and be a, a theological word. Indeed. So word. 
word, you guys. We'll be back next week with a brand new episode. Find us on Facebook. Find us on email. Find us on Pinterest, apparently. Let's double our listenership. Tell all your friends. Put reviews on iTunes so iTunes can tell us that we're noteworthy. And we will uh, we will keep bringing the same good stuff, the same bat time, same bat week. Yeah. Bring in the funk. See you next week, everybody. Okay, bye. The Word on the Hill is a production of the Aquinas Institute for Catholic Thought here in beautiful Boulder, Colorado, www.thomascenter.org. You can also send us an email at lankyguys at thomascenter.org. See you next week.